بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله الحمد لله وكفى وسلام على عباده الذين اصطفى اما بعد فاعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم ان الله وملائكته يصلون على النبي يا ايها الذين امنوا صلوا عليه وسلموا تسليما بالصدر الشريف اللهم صل على سيدنا محمد وعلى ال سيدنا محمد كما صليت على ابراهيم وعلى ال ابراهيم انك حميد مجيد اللهم بارك على سيدنا محمد وعلى ال سيدنا محمد كما باركت على ابراهيم وعلى ال ابراهيم انك حميد مجيد uh, so this is a following session from last week we had the question and answer session part 1 and we had a lot of questions left over we had some more coming in this week as well and uh, of course it's not possible to answer every single question uh, but at least we can try and discuss some of the common questions that arise in the minds of muslims and try and discuss them and understand how to go about and navigate this particular issue of palestine and masjid al-aqsa and we discussed last week that this particular topic and session we are conducting uh, in light of the hadith of maymuna bint sa'ad radiyallahu ta'ala anha Uh, under the heading of Aftina fi Bayt al-Maqdis. Some, uh, it's an amazing lesson we learn from this female companion of the Prophet sallallahu in regards to asking, questioning, and learning about Bayt al-Maqdis, which is, I believe, is the greatest, one of the greatest needs of the hour. Um, this was the prophetic methodology in how he instilled the love of Bayt al-Maqdis in the heart of the Sahaba, where he taught them uh, and they learned from him. And it was a constant thing throughout from day one till his last moments. Inshallah, if we get time, we can discuss maybe later on uh, if it comes up in any of the questions. Uh, however, this is something that is much needed. It's, it's the need of the hour. And as we also learned uh, two weeks ago in the hadith of Maymuna bin Tusad radiallahu ta'ala anha, When she asked the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam regarding Baytul Maqdis, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, Ardul manshari wal mahshar. It is a land of resurrection and gathering. Ituhu fasallu fihi. Go there and pray there. Because praying there is like praying a thousand salah elsewhere. And then he said, if you can't go there, then send some oil to be burnt in its lanterns. Because, and then this is, this, is, this is the interesting part. So he says, send some oil to be burnt in its lanterns. Because the one who gifts and dedicates something to Masjid Al-Aqsa, is like the person who was prayed there. And from here we deduce and the ulama mention, of course nowadays they don't need oil to be burnt in its, uh, in its lanterns. It's got, there's electricity. So the idea here is to support the cause of Masjid Al-Aqsa, whatever is within our capacity, whatever we can do wherever we are in the world. Maymuna bintu Sa'd radiallahu ta'ala anha was number one a maulat. She, wasn't, she didn't even own her own life. She was a slave, a maid uh, in, in the household of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So she didn't have the freedom to go and come when she wanted. Despite that, she asked this question, which we can learn that anybody can do this, wherever you are in the world. And secondly, she's a female, so it's not just for males. Male, female, young, old, free, even if you're a slave, although we don't have the concept of slavery nowadays. It doesn't matter who you are, how busy a person is, every person can do something and should do something 
to dedicate for the sake of Masjid Al-Aqsa, Baytul Maqdis. Your attendance in this program is also a dedication to Baytul Maqdis if you have the intention. And then to attend any other such programs, whoever's doing them, wherever they may be taking place. Uh, even listening to a hadith regarding Baytul Maqdis or doing anything that will bring you closer, help you to learn and benefit the cause, inshallah. Everything is worthwhile and nothing will go to waste. Everything will be included in the Mizan of Hasanat on the Day of Judgment, inshallah. So let's, let's continue. So Alhamdulillah, I think we covered a good number of questions last week. A lot of interesting topics were discussed and we were able to discuss things from uh, different kind of angles, um, also different to what we normally talk about as well. Um, so the first question we have today, um, so the question is asking, why have the Arab nations remained quiet during the current situation in Palestine? I have seen a more proactive approach and support on social media and condemnation from countries like Ireland who have supported Palestine and condemned all actions taken by Israel. What strategies or solutions could the Ummah benefit from to unify all Arab nations and help Palestine? Good question. Do we all have this question in our minds? It's something that everybody thinks about. We hear this all the time. Why is so-and-so country not doing anything? Why is that country not doing anything? Why is that government silent? Why is that leader? Is, does he even deserve to be a leader? And uh, for, for a lot of people, it's very, very frustrating because you can see it because this is a discussion that happens. Whenever anything happens, everybody's like looking to see who says what and who does what. And most of the time, no one really does or says anything. So, um, so this is the question. And obviously, we've seen countries like Ireland and others as well who have followed in their footsteps and they've taken some sort of action. And what strategies and solutions could the Ummah benefit from to unify all Arab nations and help Palestine? Okay, so I think first of all, we need to understand this whole issue. Um, first, we need to differentiate between governments, regimes, and the common people. I, I think we, there needs to be a separation because what's happening now, I've noticed a trend, and it's probably been there from the beginning of times, because of a government or a regime, or should I call it a, a barbaric regime, or a, a brutal, a, a tyrant regime, oppressive regime, whether they be Muslim or non-Muslim, uh, oppression, injustice is wrong on all levels, regardless of who's doing it. So generally what happens when you sort of dislike a regime or a government, you end up sort of disliking all those people as well. So. And I think that's becoming quite common. So people will end up sort of, it's a type of stereotyping, isn't it? It's a way of stereotyping and categorizing people. So for example, uh, let's take an example of UAE, for example. Um, we, we, are, we can all see uh, what's happened with the UAE. Um, they've always been problematic in that sense. And they've always had these kind of funny issues going on there. You can never tell like what, what they're about to do next. They're just really different. and. And you know they normalize their ties, of course. You've, you've got their ministers wearing masks 
during COVID with the Israeli flag and then the UAE flag and you've got children wearing the t-shirts with again both flags and all sorts of things. So they, they, they've got this, they've taken the normalization to a next level. And today, just now as we speak, the uh, new Israeli foreign minister has landed in UAE and they've just opened the uh, Israeli embassy in UAE uh, for the first time. This is like fresh news just happened today. Um, so, and prior to that, obviously you've seen Alongside the normalization, um, you've seen a lot of other comments, delegations from there. At the moment, there's a UAE delegation touring Israeli settlements, going to visit Israeli hospitals. Um, and again, it's going to places where there's extremist Zionist settlers who have caused much difficulty to Palestinians and Masjid al-Aqsa. Um, so you, you've got that going on. So, what happens is that's one example then you've got the example of saudi for example and everything that's happening with mbs and all that kind of thing what tends to then happen is a lot of people they sort of try and put like all of the saudis are like that or everyone for them from the uae you come across someone from uae and then you just people just have this kind of disgust for them thinking now you know whereas that's not always true so i think the first thing we need to do is differentiate between governments, regimes, and their people. And a lot of the times, the people are not corrupt. The governments might be corrupt, the regime might be corrupt, but there's a lot of good people living in those countries. And we can't just brush everybody and saying all of the UAE is corrupt, or all of Morocco is corrupt, because Morocco's also uh, normalized relations uh, with, with Israel recently, whereas the people don't like it. Bahrain have also, but there's a, there's a lot of activism against this kind of behavior. Do you really think everybody in the UAE is agreeing to this? No, not everybody does agree to it. Can they speak out? Not always. And this is the issue. You might see silence from certain individuals or people generally. You might not see much movement. However, it's not as easy. In this country, I think sometimes we take it, take it for granted with the freedoms that we have and how openly we can speak and attend the masajid. In a lot of the Muslim countries, you are very, very restricted. I'll give you a fresh example. Last week, last week was it, I think, or two weeks ago, I'm sure it was last week, was, the, um, uh, was, was that lady, Allah al-Siddiq. Allah al-Siddiq, who was living in London, who was working for human rights organization, she established Al-Qist or something, from UAE, her father, has been in the UAE prisons since 2013 and she couldn't even live there anymore. She fled to the UK. She's been living in London, set up this human rights organization, trying to fight for the freedom of her father. Um, and, and before we mention Allah Siddiq, Jamal Khashoggi, for example, what happened to him? You know, he spoke out against what's happening in Saudi Arabia. He, he knew too much. And what happened? He was finished off. Okay. He wasn't even in Saudi at the time. This is another example. Many, many believe that Allah Siddiq in London on those streets, that car accident, a lot of say, people say it was planned. It was intentional. There was a strategy behind it. And she was killed. She died in a car crash. A, a, a very highly possible that it was, she was killed. Um, and her father is in, in, in now, they're there in the UAE. And obviously he's been in prison. Uh, for whatever reason, you know, he was, again, he was a human rights activist as well. So you speak out against the injustice carrying, carried up by a regime and they just lock you up and you're like nowhere to be seen. 
There's no, there's been no access to him since 2013. She's been fighting, you know, for her, for her father and for others as well. And uh, known as a very popular person. And uh, just a couple of weeks ago, last week, um, in a car accident. And then UAE actually didn't even allow her dead body to enter UAE. So she was buried, buried in, in, in Doha, in Qatar. Uh, I'm sure it was, was it last week? I'm sure it's, it's, it's not been long. So that, that's one example I can give you. And the, the list goes on, you know better than me how these things work. So it's important to differentiate between regimes, governments and the people. Morocco, I give you an example of Morocco. Morocco um, also has normalized their relations. However, the Moroccan people, not everybody agrees with it. When the Israeli ambassador arrived in Morocco, um, he was there for a number of weeks. He could not find an apartment to rent in Morocco. Being an ambassador, all the security provided, because as soon as people found out, the Moroccans found out why he's here, nobody, nobody would allow him to stay in their apartments. And th th that's what happened first. And then just recently, uh, after he arrived, and he's, I don't know where he ended up staying, and when he toured the places, uh, Moroccan activists went round all those places in Morocco where he visited, and they were like brushing and cleaning up and washing up those areas. It, it, it's just to show that the people are not always in agreement with their government. So when we view things, we shouldn't always paint everybody with the same brush. And I just does tend to happen. So especially when it comes to Saudi, for example, we think all, all of the Arabs are like that. Not necessarily. There are a lot of good people. They've been silenced. Um, they're voiceless. And it's very difficult. Look at the number of scholars that have been put into prison. Salman al-Auda, for example, one tweet, one tweet, and it, was, it wasn't even something, it wasn't inciting hatred or it was just to say that may Allah unite the hearts of the Arabs of Saudi Arabia and maybe the Arab, our brothers in, in Qatar, for example. That, something to those, on those lines. And for how many years has it been? You know, he's been in prison, denied any medical care, denied any access to family, denied any kind of, you know, getting out of that prison and whatever condition he's in. And that's just one name. There are so many names uh, like that. And these are things that we get to know about. Who knows what's happening behind the scenes? And not, these are not crimes that are being committed. It's not, they've not even, you know, it's different when somebody's gone and provoked something or caused some kind of violence to happen. We're not calling for that. These are people who are, you know, the good people. But as soon as a regime gets a, even a little bit of a, a scent that these individuals might be supporting of, a cause that they don't agree with, immediately they are imprisoned, they are tortured, and they are silenced. Um, but then we've got countries like Kuwait, for example, who have been very open in their support for the Palestinian cause. Um, we saw in the parliament, all of the members of parliament were wearing the kufiyah, uh, the black and white um, mask, uh, the, like the Palestinian scarf, and this was happening on a governmental level. And they've always spoke up. They've even said in, in terms of their funding and, and the support that they're willing to offer to rebuild uh, Gaza, for example. Now, why are these governments silent and they don't? Because the true and the sad reality is they're complicit with what the occupation is doing. That, that's the true reality. As sad as it is, they are complicit with it. They are okay with it happening. They don't agree with the Palestinian cause. They don't have the 
sanctity and the honor of Masjid Al-Aqsa and those lands uh, for a number of reasons. Either they don't believe it to be holy um, because there has been, we spoke last week, that there has been uh, not just in terms of land grabbing, not just in terms of uh, changing holy sites, but in terms of academia. A lot of work has happened uh, on academia to try and steal the narrative, to ensure that wherever these, uh, these people can reach, so it's not just schools and colleges and universities, but academia has an impact on laws and policy making. It has an impact on, uh, on the understanding, uh, which is uh, you know, put out through the media. Um, and a lot of these individuals have been brainwashed with these kind of ideas that that place isn't for us. There's nothing to do, it's got nothing to do with Islam. Aqsa is in the heavens, it's in the skies, or it's in Jairana, like somebody said. Like the Qadianis say it's in Qadian, so they say Makkah, Medina, and Aqsa is in Qadian. So, this is probably, I, I mean, I'm just trying to make an excuse for them, I'll be honest with you, because I can't really understand any third option. Uh, I, either they don't regard it at all, or then they've got a different understanding altogether. W what else could it be? You know, if somebody's intentionally doing this, then, you know, that person can't even be a Muslim anymore. So it, it's quite a dangerous um, territory. But we can clearly see that they're complicit and they're happy with what's happening or they've got other priorities. It's not as important to them. Um, so this is the thing. So and in terms of strategy, what can we do? I mean, <laughs> in terms of us trying to go and change the Arab world or the, those leaders, I mean, us sitting here, um, you know, I, I don't really think we're going to, you know, being very realistic and practical uh, in, in terms of what's being asked, what strategies or solutions could the Ummah benefit from to unify all Arab nations. Well, I'm going to keep repeating what I've been saying, and I, I believe that it could impact this as well. Um, you might think this is very far-fetched, how we're going to unify all Arab nations. I still think it comes back to knowledge and understanding. In those countries, you'll be surprised, not just knowledge of Palestine and Aqsa, that's like a, that's what we're talking at an advanced level. If you were to ever go and visit these places, these countries, you know, just because, again, as Asians, many a times we see somebody speaking Arabic and we get really excited and we get overwhelmed. Anybody that speaks Arabic, okay, our crowd calls them a sheikh straight away. Whereas they might not even, they, you, you probably have, you could possibly have more Islamic knowledge than that person does. Your Quranic recitation might be better than that individual's. But automatically, it's just, maybe it's the love for Arabs that we have. And because Quran is in Arabic, the Prophet ﷺ spoke Arabic and we're so impressed with Arabic. Anybody that speaks a bit of Arabic or is an Arab, immediately we, we, we start calling them Sheikh. And you, we might have the greatest scholar living amongst us, but we won't really value them that much. Or you just call them a Malwi or something like that. But some guy who, who you don't even know who that person is, and they might not even have any Islamic knowledge, or they might even be corrupt to the core. But just because they're speaking Arabic, automatically, uh, the guy is telling, look, brother, I'm not a sheikh, and you just call him sheikh. Okay, sheikh is, sheikh is it, it, it's a quite a high term. Um, so I, 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 don't, I don't know what it is. So what I'm trying to get at is this. When you go to those kind of countries, um, despite them being Arab countries, 
they're not necessarily Islamic. And we're very privileged and lucky and fortunate here in the UK that we have a very robust and a strong setup and a system of the Makati but the Madaris. That every single child in our community, our area, from the age of five till about the age of 15, every day, at least throughout the week, Monday to Friday, five till seven, they will attend Quran classes, Islamic studies classes, and they will learn. You don't get this system there. That system isn't there. You'll get specialized classes, and I'm not just talking about that. Go back to our countries, India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, if you go. Maybe in certain areas you might have. I mean, I've traveled to some of the places, and you go there and, and, and you find that there's absolutely nothing. And the number of Muslims living there are in their thousands. There's no system whatsoever, nothing. Maybe the Imam or the Mu'addin who comes, a few children of the area will come read a little bit and go. I remember being in, in, in some of the rural areas in India, also in Bangladesh I visited as well. And on the streets, you ask some of the children, some of the basic things about Islam. You ask them about, you know, the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, or you ask them about who is Ali, for example. They say, oh, he's my uncle. They wouldn't know that that is the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam's cousin. He was the fourth Khalifa of Islam. And very, very basic kind of things. Um, so this is not just in our, those of us from india pakistan bangladesh for example we might be familiar with our scenarios and situations arab countries are no different just because they're arab that doesn't mean automatically they are really strong on islam and being muslim tajweed is something you have to learn and study you can't just because you speak arabic that doesn't mean that any arab will know how to read the quran no they will have to study and they will have to put the effort in they'll have to learn the rules so in those countries as well, you'll be surprised. I, I, I've seen in, in Palestine, I've seen uh, uh, many sort of video clips where you've got a person. So this is spe specifically on this topic. So in Palestine, where you've got a, a, a news reporter and they've gone on this mission and it's about learning about Aqsa. So they've gone with a microphone and they're going up to approaching random people up the street, young, old men, women, and asking them some basic questions about Masjid al-Aqsa. And you, you'll be surprised at the answers that they're giving. And you could take this example and go into the streets of any Muslim country and ask them even basic things about Islam. And you'll be surprised. So sometimes we think that, you know, just because they are Arab countries, they will automatically be better off. So number one, They've been made very distant. There's been a whole effort that's gone on to make this into a Palestinian issue. Uh, before it was, it was put together as everyone understood it as a, as a Muslim issue. Then they said, oh, it's an Arab issue. And then, then it's been discounted. Oh, it's a Palestinian issue. It's got nothing to do with anybody else. So that's what they've been told. Secondly, when they're so far from Islam and Islamic knowledge already, and they're not allowed to talk about these topics, and there's no mention of this, of course, they can't visit because their countries up until now didn't have uh, relations as well. So nobody's really going. So if you're not talking about something, nobody's talking about it. So how will they learn? It's only now because of social media. You've got so many people now learning about it, knowing about it. But up until now, years and years of being totally cut off from Masjid al-Aqsa, from Palestine, all they would hear is, uh, you know, when, if there's some kind of bombing, some kind of war, and they just think, it, oh, it's one of those areas. Let the people there deal with it. We can't do anything here. 
So there's a number of things. So coming back to the original point, knowledge. Knowledge is power. Um, we have to start from scratch. We have to start learning. We have to start teaching. We have to start spreading the knowledge and speaking about it, learning about it. Because how can you defend something that you don't even value? If you don't have the worth of something, the value of something, why would you defend it? You don't have the qadr inside you. You don't have the importance of it. You don't know how important it is. So what has Allah said about it in the Quran? What does the hadith say? What does our history show? It, it comes down to knowledge. Knowledge is power. Once we've covered this, then our political activities will have an impact. And then moving on from there, you know, we can unite and, and move forward on it. Otherwise, it's going to be very, very uh, difficult to move ahead uh, without uh, knowledge. So I hope we've been able to answer this question. Inshallah, let's move on. The next question is, with all the problems going on in Palestine, is it 100% safe to go to Palestine for a tour? I'm still very hesitant as I am yet to go. This is a very common question. Um, we get asked this all the time. Um, and I always say one thing, whenever anybody asks this question, is it safe to go there? And I ask them like why and then they start telling you a whole list of things why they think that it's not safe to go there and I always ask one question I say all of these things that you're telling me and you've heard have you heard these things from people who've been or people who haven't been and they start scratching their head and then they go well we've heard it from people who haven't been well if you're going to listen to people who've not been that's not going to be the full picture if you go and speak to anybody who's been there do you know what the person will tell you? They can't wait to go again. Anybody who's been there before, speak to them, anybody, and they will tell you that they can't wait to go again. And those who haven't been, obviously, what's happened is you've just seen what's happening on the news, on the media, you've heard people talking about it, and that's what puts a lot of people off. So, to understand this, I know this affects a lot of people, especially those who've not been. And obviously the number of people that haven't been are far greater than the people that have been. So, number one, since 1948, um, since the Israeli occupation of Palestine, there's always something going on in those lands. Always. There's never a single day that there isn't something happening. I'm not trying to scare you. I'm, I'm just putting the reality there. For example, today. Today was the end of the, uh, or yesterday marked the end of the time limit given to the residents of Silwan that live right next to Masjid Al-Aqsa. They were given a number of days that were giving you this many days. And if you don't demolish your own house yourself with your own hands, we will bring a bulldozer and demolish it and then they will have to pay towards the cost, which is sometimes 50, 60, 70, sometimes even 90,000 pound. So I, I, I think there's about 30 something houses at the moment uh, or more than that. There's, there's more, but I'm, the time limit for this many have sort of come to an end. And in that place where they live, they want to make a, 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 a park um, based on their religious ideas. That's what they want to do. So they think that is more important than the people that have been living there in their homes. So today morning, the bulldozers arrived, the military arrived, they seized the whole area and they started by, and they knocked down a butcher's shop. So this is a guy who owns his shop for many, many years and 
he was helpless he couldn't do anything and they've demolished him and then they demolished another uh, a house or a floor of a particular house possibly they could have started off with a shock today just so that it doesn't invite international attention thinking of no one's lost their life and no one's you know no one's belongings are there it's just a shock maybe Allah knows best why they did that but that could be one possible reason that by the time they end up demolishing the rest people will have not even realized Allah not make that happen uh, however this is what this is what happened today for example it's, it's, it's huge this is a great thing there's no mention of it anywhere on, on the news whereas this is something serious um, and obviously those who are trying to stop that from happening the, the guy who owns the shop he got beaten and arrested as well so not only did they demolish his entire shop that's his livelihood gone down the drain uh, but they, he sent a strong message he sent a strong message to everybody in Silwan that whatever happened do not destroy your own house with your own hands fine if they come and demolish it um, he was quite composed to be honest even after the demolition uh, we would be in a state he was he gave a talk yeah Al Jazeera showed it but Al Jazeera is obviously Al Jazeera but I'm talking about any kind of mainstream media besides that generally you will not see these daily happenings uh, Al Jazeera obviously is in full favor of the Palestinian cause and what's happening and that is one of the news sites that and that's why there are so many sanctions on Al Jazeera in so many countries it's not even allowed anymore um, and that is why they attacked the Al Jazeera tower recently as well because they do share uh, what's happening on the ground there are some very good reporters of Al Jazeera now what's happening there on the ground now in Palestine is they've started attacking news reporters as well whereas by law international law you're not allowed to attack the press um, that's a crime in itself so they're trying to silence the media so that nobody gets to find out what's happening anywhere in the world. Um, but so that is one example I'm sharing with you from today. So since 1948, there's always something going on. Um, it's very eventful. There's arrests happening all the time. There's raids happening. There's home demolitions. People are being assaulted. There's demolition orders, the dispersal orders. And but that doesn't mean that when you go there you're gonna get attacked okay these things are all happening some of the things happen in the night some of them happen in the day something might happen in front of you but it's very different to the UK you know like they could end up killing a Palestinian in cold blood as you see and just accuse him of carrying a knife for example they could literally kill him and if you go past that site maybe an hour later you might not see any sign of any activity they could have done away with it all done dusted gone and life's back to normal whereas if it's here it's a crime scene for like months sometimes and everybody would know about it. you wouldn't be able to go closer to the area so there's people traveling to Jerusalem in their thousands and thousands from all over the world all the time when you are there a lot of times when we're going for uh, Fajr or even before Fajr Sometimes even way before Fajr, at the time of Tahajjud, if you're going towards Masjid Al-Aqsa, many a times you will find large groups of Christians, massive groups of Christians, and they've started their tour of the streets of Jerusalem early in the morning at that time. And they're coming from all over the world. 
every, you name it, from every type of country in their thousands. So Muslims, very few Muslims are going there in comparison to the other people that are visiting from all over the world, Christians, Jews, and people of no religion as well. The people are coming, I mean, whatever impacts us would impact them as well. So there are a lot of international tourists from all over the world. Obviously, there's the local people that live there. There's the local Jewish people that live there as well. So it's not as if it's, it's, it's not a war zone. Like a lot of people say, oh, why are you going to Palestine? It's a war zone. It's not a war zone as such. Uh, okay, going, Gaza is very different. Even in Gaza, when the incidents happen, that's when they happen. When they're not happening, well, no one's fighting there at the moment. There's no attacks there at the moment. But you can't go there. Gaza is probably two to three hours away from Jerusalem. It is a full blockade around it. Nobody can enter inside anyway. And that is when you travel from the UK and you go to Palestine to Jerusalem, you wouldn't be going to Gaza anyway. Um, number one, you shouldn't be going there. And number two, I mean, you can't access it anyway. So and, and none of the groups go anywhere near that direction. So you're not going to somewhere which is being sort of constantly attacked and bombed and airstrikes going on, number one. Number two, um, when you go there, another question a lot of people have which is related is, like, is it correct to go there when there's an occupation? So the main thing is when people go there, what we want people to do is you go there and you stay in Muslim-owned Palestinian hotels. You buy food from Muslim Palestinians and help their economy. You use transport of, of, of Palestinian, local Palestinians use their transport system and use a Palestinian tour guide. So you're helping their economy and boosting their morale and giving them support. And they will tell you when you, when you arrive there, they tell you that, look, we don't want your money. Okay, we don't want your money. We don't want anything. We just want you. We want you to come. And they welcome you so beautifully that when you go there, they say to you, um, welcome to your first home. This is how they welcome you. Welcome to your first home. And we don't get welcomed in our own houses like this. Welcome to your first home. And this is how, how they call you. And they say, regarding Masjid Al-Aqsa, they say to you, this is your masjid. This is your masjid. Here, everybody's fighting my masjid, our masjid, okay? Here, this fight, you, you switch the light off, and this masjid is different. Okay, this is the, 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 in this masjid, if you switch the light off, you get in trouble. Okay, but generally in masjids, if you switch a light on, okay, there's a whole fight happens. Why did you switch the light on? On somebody will say, why did you put it off? Why did you switch the fan on? Why did you switch it off? Okay, there, when you go there, everybody tells you, this is your masjid. Welcome to your masjid. It's a, it's a whole different way of thinking altogether very welcoming very hospitable very kind they love to see you there it gives them a lot of hope that yes muslims do care they do have concern i remember uh, many years ago one of the times we were going to travel and um, we had a family traveling with us who and they had children with them as well so the night before we were going to travel uh, one of the parents got in touch with me and said look you know we're the first people from our family who are going to be going and last night all our family came to visit and talk to us and um, they said to us that look if you love your children don't go if you love your children don't go only go there if you hate your children because you're gonna go there and your children are gonna get killed 
So, and the parent was very concerned and said, well, what should I do? He said, well, it's your choice, really. It's your choice what you want to do. What do you think? I mean, do you believe what they say? Have they been before? They go, no, they've not been before. So, well, this is what the kind of things they're saying. That they're claiming that we don't love our children. If we loved our children, we wouldn't take them to Palestine because if we go there, they're going to get killed. And um, so I said, look, it's your choice. Uh, I, I don't think it's an issue, alhamdulillah. You know, we've taken our children and many people take their children many a times. And there's elderly people, there's women, there's children traveling uh, all the time. And alhamdulillah, they've gone there, they've come back safe and they're willing to go again and again as many times Allah allows us to. So they decided, yes, we'll, we'll, we'll go along and you know, uh, we won't listen to what people have got to say. I remember very clearly the first day when we got there uh, and the children were playing in the masjid when we got there. Because it's, it's a huge masjid, Al-Aqsa is absolutely huge. A lot of it is open ground and the children really enjoy it in those places. And, 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 and there's nobody going to tell your child, okay, um, what you're doing, what you're not doing. You know, there's, there's no kind of sanctioning like that, like we have in some of our masjids, unfortunately. So the children feel very welcome. They get given sweets and chocolates and they get welcome to the masjid and people talk to you, they make salam to you. And they came to me and they said, we can't wait to get back to the UK and tell our relatives that, you know, why were you telling us these kind of things? We feel safer in Masjid Al-Aqsa than we do when we are back home. At home, we, we can't allow our children to go out of our houses nowadays. When we were young, it was different. But here our children, you know, they're playing and they're happy and we're coming and going to the masjid. Sometimes they're even coming and going on their own as well. And we don't have any issue whatsoever. So that doesn't mean things don't happen. That means things do happen. However, if you do and be in the right places where you need to be, then you'll be fine. Obviously, if you're going to go and join a demonstration, a protest that's happening, which is being suppressed by police, now you're, you're getting yourself into trouble. You're putting yourself in danger. You're going out of your way to take part in something which is not for you to take part in having gone from the UK. And then if you get injured in that, then that's your own fault. That's your own responsibility. So when you go from here, whether you go as a group, as you go as a family, generally what happens, the group and or the family stick together from the time you leave from here till you get back ensuring and all these years uh, alhamdulillah we've been going for about 12 years now i've not known of anyone uh, who's you know been attacked or injured in that kind of a way yes maybe if somebody has involved themselves in some kind of a demonstration or a protest of gone or gone somewhere then possibly it's possible but if you're minding your own business getting along with your thing uh, i've not known for that to happen with anyone from the uk i'm not saying it hasn't but I, I don't know of anyone that it's happened to uh, when they've been minding their own business. And a lot of people, they get put off by what they hear about what happens at the airport. That what happens at the airport or the border if you're going through Jordan. Now, the simple thing is this. The most that they make you do at the border is wait, at, at the airport is wait. And it's just a process that they have. And I, I just think one of the reasons is to put you off from visiting again. And that's what they want. So sometimes you could go there and they could make you wait there. You know, there's a little room there, so you go, give your passport in. Generally, people over the age of 50, they let them go through. If you're traveling with young children, they let you go through. If you're middle-aged, uh, under the age of 50, 40, or if you're a youth, for example, you're not with your family, 
a lot of times they will take your passport and say, go and sit in that room. And you just go there and wait. Um, they might not even ask you any questions. Sometimes they might ask you, uh, what's your father's name? What's your grandfather's name? Um, have you traveled to any countries in the last five years? If you're not born in the UK, they might ask you, where were you born? Which countries you've been to? That's about, that's about it, really. And then it's a waiting game. Sometimes some individuals get asked a few more questions. But again, nothing to like, how long are you going to be here for? Do you know anybody over here? Where will you be staying? What do you plan to do? What dates your return? Um, sometimes someone might get asked one or two extra questions, but nothing, nothing too difficult. And um, the main thing is waiting. Most of the people generally, they just make them wait. You could be waiting for two hours, could be three hours, four hours, five hours, could even be six hours. If you're going through Jordan, sometimes seven, eight or nine hours as well. At Tel Aviv, you know, four, five hours, it's very normal. Don't our sisters queue up for the next sale at four o'clock in the morning? Doesn't that happen? Yeah, when there's a, when there's a sale in next, sisters sometimes watch, and some brothers as well. Four o'clock in the morning, they're there waiting in the queue. Everything's 50% off. How many hours do you have to wait till it opens? And sometimes you don't get, you get to go in because there's too many people inside. When we go to theme parks, Alton Towers, Thorpe Park, just to go on one ride, which is going to last probably one minute, how long do we stand in that queue? Sometimes one and a half hours. Yeah, we've all done it before. Two hours. Yeah, easy. Watching a game of football sometimes, how, how long sometimes you'd be standing and you wouldn't, you wouldn't even think about it. Yeah, you've got your 90 minutes extra time and whatnot after that as well. And then waiting for the crowd to disperse. And so we, we do it for other reasons. So this is a little, little, little sacrifice uh, for the sake of being able to visit Masjid Al-Aqsa, be there, gain all the rewards. And ask anybody, once you arrive in Masjid Al-Aqsa, you forget all of that waiting. All of that waiting goes. And normally what happens is, if, if whether you travel as, as a group or as a family, um, take lots of uh, snacks with you, food with you. Now at that time whilst you're waiting, now when salah time comes, you'll do your salah, and then put out your dastarkhan, sit down, have your samosas, have your, you know, your drink, your, your crisps, your share out your fruits, talk to the people that are there. Then you can, uh, you know, spend some time getting to know people that are there. And then another salah time will come and like this, your, your time will pass. You might want to knock off for a little bit, you're feeling tired. Um, you might want to share some stories with somebody, whatever. It, it, you, you, they're not asking you to do anything once you're there. They're just asking you to wait. Make the most of that time. Make it a pleasant experience uh, as opposed to making a, a negative experience. A lot of people think that you go then they put you in a dungeon or something. No, it's an airport. It's an airport and it's just a corner of the airport. There's some seating there and that, that's about it really. You just sit and you just wait. It's not a prison cell or a dungeon or something. Uh, yeah, although there are no, yeah, you can't access any shops or anything. Um, so that's why we say take your grub with you, whatever provisions you need to keep you going. And inshallah, your wait there will be a pleasant one. Um, so that was in regards to visiting. So going there, um, I, I think, yes, there are many people who've never been there um, from, I'm not talking about UK, but I'm talking about countries where they're not allowed to travel. However, um, they are 
very strongly connected to Masjid Al-Aqsa in Palestine because they're very active in maybe online or through other methods. Um, but I do feel that obviously going there is only going to increase your connection. Hearing about something, it's like going to the Haram and going to Kaaba, for example. You see in the pictures, but then when you go there, it's a, it's a huge different thing altogether. So going there, visiting there, praying there, that will just increase your connection with Masjid Al-Aqsa, with the people, with the area, with the Baraka. And the Baraka is tangible, perceivable. You can feel it, taste it, experience it. And once you've been through that once, you just want to keep going again and again, just like as we have a desire to visit, visit the Haramain uh, time and time again. Uh, let's move on to the next question. Is the conquest of Palestine one of the signs of Qiyamah? Yes, the Prophet ﷺ did prophesy in his time. Uh, there are three Sahaba who the Prophet ﷺ actually told them this prophecy that Masjid al-Aqsa, Bayt al-Maqdis is going to be liberated or conquered. Three Sahaba, I'll name them, I'll share with you the incidents. Number one, we have Hadith of Bukhari, Awf ibn Malik al-Ashja'i radiyallahu ta'ala anhu. And number two, we have a hadith from uh, Imam al-Tabrani regarding Shaddad ibn Aws radiyallahu ta'ala anhu. And then number three, we have the hadith of Dhul Asabi' uh, Sahabi radiyallahu ta'ala anhu. These three incidents I can mention. There are others as well, but these three incidents um, we, we will mention now. So first of all, we find during the Battle of Tabuk, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam now, there's a whole story, and we've talked about this before in one of the talks. Um, it, was, it was a long talk, and we spoke about the prophetic strategy of it and how he liberated Bayt al Maqdis, or he planned and strategized for this. And right towards the end of this, we find that the Prophet, after a lifelong struggle, he set out for Tabuk. And normally, the Prophet didn't actually highlight where the Sahaba were going to be traveling to. On this occasion, he was very clear we're going to Tabuk. And Tabuk is the furthest the Prophet ﷺ has been in terms of a military expedition. He didn't go any further than that. Yes, he's been to Asham when he was younger on the business trade journeys. But in terms of leaving Medina Munawwara, that is the furthest he went. That's the furthest from Arabia he went, from, from Medina he went, he's still in Arabia. And the closest to Bayt al-Maqdis. So that's going right to the north of Arabia and coming very close to Bayt al-Maqdis is Tabuk. So when the Prophet ﷺ arrived in Tabuk, many things happened between his leaving Medina and arriving in Tabuk. Right at the end of that journey, the Prophet ﷺ was in a tent. It was made of leather and it was very small, very tight. And the Sahabis, uh, Awf ibn Malik al-Ashja'i, Imam al-Bukhari relates this, that the Sahabi, he mentions that the Prophet ﷺ was in a leather tent. It was very small. And I asked permission, can I enter? And the Prophet said, yes, come in. Now, he was quite a humorous Sahabi. So out of like, in a joking manner, he said, you, I, shall I fully enter or half of me enter? Why, why do you think he said that? Because he was so small. So, oh, Prophet of Allah, you're saying come in. But I thought that you, maybe if you come out, it'd be more convenient. But khair, you asked me to come in. Shall I like, fully enter or half of me? He said, no, fully enter into the tent. So he said, I entered into the tent. I just about got into the tent and the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam said to me, said to me, Count six things between now 
and the final hour. Number one, he said, Mauti, he said, mighty mice. One of the signs of the last day is the Prophet saying, I'm going to pass away. And then he said, Thumma fathu baytil maqdis. Number two sign of the last hour, the conquest and the liberation of Baytul Maqdis. So that's one hadith you wanted to know. The questioner says, are there any, uh, is the conquest of Palestine one of the signs of Qiyamah? So the Prophet wasallam here, he's clearly saying, count six things between me and the final hour. Meaning he's listing some of the signs of the hour. So the Prophet passing away is one of the signs of the hour. Okay, we might consider it an earlier sign, but he sallallahu alayhi wa sallam has said, U'udud sitan bayna So, number one. The second hadith we find, Shaddad ibn Aws. Now remember, this is again towards the end of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam's life. Shaddad ibn Aws radiallahu ta'ala anhu on one occasion, he, was, he wasn't feeling well. And the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam visited him. And he sallallahu alayhi wa sallam asked him, uh, oh Shaddad, how do you feel? So Shaddad ibn Aus responded by saying that I feel very depressed, very down, very stressed. That despite the narrowness of the world and of this life, I feel very narrowed. My life feels very tight. I feel like I'm in a, you know, in a dark space. You know, some people say I feel like I'm in a dark space. I, I don't really know what to do. So this is what he said. Now, the Prophet ﷺ, realizing a Sahabi of his being in this condition, how did he bring him out from depression? What did he tell him? He thought he'll share with him something that would excite him. Well, what, what do we do? When we see somebody that's down, we try to sort of liven them up. Tell them something that would interest them. And this, from this we learn what interested the Sahaba. What did they work for? What was their mission? Allah ya shaddad. The Prophet said, Shall I not give you some good news, O Shaddad? He said, Bala ya Rasulullah, why not? So the Prophet said, Shaddad, listen very carefully. Inna shama yufta. A sham, meaning the Levant area, is going to be liberated. Wa baytul maqdis yufta. Baytul maqdis is going to be liberated, is going to be conquered. That's good news. But then the, the greater good news comes after this for him. And you, O Shaddad, you and your children are going to become Imams in Masjid Al-Aqsa, inshaAllah. Imagine how happy he became. And that actually happened. Shaddad ibn Aus who traveled to Baytul Maqdis, he was a Qadi in Baytul Maqdis, he was an Imam there. And today, he is one of the two Sahaba who are buried alongside the wall of Masjid Al-Aqsa. Shaddad ibn Aws and Ubadah ibn Samit radiallahu ta'ala anhum. So this is also a hadith where the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, he gives the uh, liberation of Baytul Maqdis as a sign of the end of times. Similarly, uh, there was a Sahabi by the name of Dhul Asabi. He came to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and he asked a question, Inibdulina bil baqai ba'daka fama O Prophet of Allah. If you leave the world before us, you pass away before we do, and Allah tests us, we get tested. We get tested by having to remain alive without you. How, how are we going to live without you? Imagine Sahaba, how difficult it must have been for them. 
So see, if we get tested in regards to this in Medina, everywhere we look, we're going to be reminded of you. It's going to be a huge test for us, just remaining alive. We will we'll be counting the days. We, we wouldn't want to be alive without your presence. Tell us what to do if we, if we ever encounter such a scenario where we find it difficult to even remain alive after you leave us, what do you tell us to do? The Prophet ﷺ said, عَلَيْكَ بِبَيْتِ الْمَقْدِسِ my command to you is make sure you go and live in Baytul Maqdis. And then he said, a time is going to come where you and your children, he mentions children here as well, you and your children will go morning and evening to that masjid, meaning Masjidul Aqsa. You will go morning and evening, you will go to that masjid, meaning Masjid Al Aqsa. So, these are a few ahadith where the Prophet speaks about the liberation of Baytul Maqdis. And we saw that this happened five years after the Prophet passed away in the time of Sayyiduna Umar, uh, that Baytul Maqdis was liberated. And then from then, from the time of Umar for hundreds of years, it was under Muslim rule. And then for a short period again, 88 years, the Crusaders, uh, they occupied Baytul Maqdis. And then once again, after Salahuddin Ayyubi they came, Baytul Maqdis was under Muslim rule for a lengthy period of time until the British occupation in the early 1900s. And then now we have the Israeli occupation and we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to liberate it once again. It will be liberated again. There are other ahadith also that tell us uh, in, in different ways. The Prophet sallallahu told Ibn al-Hawala, for example, when you see that the Khilafah has arrived in Baytul Maqdis, then know that you know this is towards the end of time. So there are many other ahadith that tell us and indicate towards the fact that Baytul Maqdis, of course, will be liberated. The Jal will not be able to enter. The people that will be with the Jal, they will be coming from Isfahan. If they're coming from Isfahan, that means that they will be made to go out of Baytul Maqdis. And the reason why they're all coming to Baytul Maqdis now, possibly Quran tells us, uh, to humiliate them. And if people are all in one place, it's easier to humiliate Zionism in one go because the whole world is seeing uh, how barbaric and how uh, the injustice that is being carried out, the home demolitions, the arrests and the forced evictions, the raiding of houses, the killing of young children and the destruction of uh, health uh, care and all these kind of things is coming to light. And this is a very difficult thing for the occupation. The occupation now isn't working towards expanding. The occupation now is working for survival. This is the important thing to understand. They are not, up until now, they were trying to expand and grow their recognition in the world. Now there's a struggle for their survival because they're losing support more than ever before. You might not see that. That's not what you might see. But the reality on the ground is that on many, many fronts, on many, many fronts, Alhamdulillah, Muslims, Palestinians, Islam as a whole uh, is uh, gaining momentum. Whatever, all the efforts that are taking place throughout the world are making an impact. It is making a difference. There have been significant things that have happened up until now, which have not happened before, which show us that now the struggle that they have is of survival. That they, how can we remain with what we've got? 
Yes, they will continue to try and expand, but that's not their priority, is to even just survive now, to without losing what they've got, without losing their uh, popularity and the recognition that they've tried to create or want. Um, also, another thing which we mentioned, um, I, I can't remember when we discussed this possibly last week, is the aim of trying to, the, the Zionist aim of trying to Judaize the Muslim areas, um, that seems like a very distant thing now. Uh, that's something maybe pr previously they may, may have done in certain areas where they've taken away certain masajid, converted them into synagogues, maybe changed the names of many, many streets. Uh, but to, to actually change the identity and the fabric of Jerusalem into something that is not Islamic, that will take a lot of work. Uh, so Alhamdulillah, it, Jerusalem still has a, a very heavy Islamic Muslim identity, despite all the aggression. You go there, you will know that this stone will tell you, looking at, you can tell by the stone will tell you that I am a Muslim. The land will speak out to you, will tell you this is, I'm a Muslim, Islamic, Arab land. And to take that away, it's going to take a lot. And I, I don't think that's something that will be achieved. Maybe in the past where they wiped out many, many villages, okay, when the, uh, the catastrophe and the Nakba happened. But now, I think last week we spoke about this already. Okay, let's do another question. How emphasized is visiting Al-Aqsa in our deen? Um, there's a lot of emphasis actually. Uh, one hadith of Bukhari, لا تشد الرحال إلا إلا ثلاثي مساجد A person should not undertake a special journey except to three masjid. Meaning, take a special journey. You should undertake a special journey to three masjids. Masjid al-Haram, Masjid al-Nabwi, and Masjid al-Aqsa. Also, we know in the hadith of Maymuna, إِتُوهُ فَصَلُّوا فِيهِ The Prophet Wasallam is saying, go there and pray there. Because if you pray there, it's like performing a hundred, a thousand salah elsewhere. The hadith of wearing ihram from Masjid al-Aqsa. Man ahalla bihajjatin aw umratin min al-Masjid al-Aqsa ila al-Masjid al-Haram ghufira lahu ma taqaddama min dhambihi wa ma taakhar wa fi riwayatin aw wajabat lahu al-Jannah. So the Prophet ﷺ has encouraged whoever wears the ihram from Masjid al-Aqsa and you go to Masjid al-Haram either to perform Hajj or to perform Umrah, all your past and your future sins will be forgiven. And in one hadith it says that Jannah will become necessary upon you. So of course in our deen we can find that it is very emphasized uh, to go there, to travel there, to visit there. It's one of the holiest places in Islam. And especially at this time, now, you know, it's, it's the need of the hour. Alhamdulillah, if you've been for your Farad Hajj, You've of course been to Medina Munawwara as well. I mean, go as many times you can. And may Allah take us again and again and again to the blessed Haramain. But if you've been there and you've been a number of times and you haven't been to Masjid Al-Aqsa, definitely there is a need. Alhamdulillah, people are going to the Haramain and they'll continue going to the Haramain. That recognition is there. But there is a massive need for people to go and visit Masjid Al-Aqsa, be there, increase the number of the Muslims there, increase the Muslim presence there, and, and, and pray there. And once you go there, your, your outlook towards it will be very different as well. Uh, and the Ummah needs that. 
So you can hear as many lectures as you want. You can see whatever you want on social media. But going there and experiencing yourself, seeing the people and the way they live and how their lives go and, and seeing the different areas that Muslims live in, it will really open your eyes. And it's, 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 you learn a lot and it'll be life-changing. Everyone I know who has been, it's not just been a tour. It's not a sightseeing tour. This, this visit is different. It's a life-changing experience. Everyone I know who's been there, who's gone there with the right intention, spent their time there correctly, they've come back and their lives have changed. Including Ibrahim salam, including the Prophet Why do I say this? Ibrahim salam. When he was in his own city in Iraq, you saw how the people treated him. You saw what was going on. You see how Quran even refers to him. You know, when he broke the idols, the, the Quran, the, the, the language Quran uses is the Quran says, Sami'na fatan yuqalu lahu Ibrahim. We heard, they said, Who, who's done this? Sami'na fatan, fatan means like a young kid. We heard of this young kid. You call, they say, they, 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 they call him Ibrahim or something. This is what Quran says. And then we find Quran says, So Ibrahim now migrates to Baytul Maqdis. And now the Quran speaks about him. Inna Ibrahim, kana umma. Ibrahim is an ummah. Massive difference how there. How he was described. Quran, this is Quran. And when he's come here, Makana Ibrahim Yahudian, Wala Nasraniyan, Walakin Kana Hanifan, Musliman. Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, we see life before Mi'raj, life after Mi'raj. Before Mi'raj, we see the, in, in Makkatul Mukarrama, they're facing persecution from day one, from the days of Sumayyah, from the days of Khabbab from the days of Bilal, even the Prophet ﷺ had very difficult days. And throughout the whole way, until what, what led to the Mi'raj? What led to the Mi'raj was the incident of Ta'if, the most difficult period and the most painful experience. He ﷺ said him, somebody asked him, what was the most difficult time in your life? And he said it was the incident of Ta'if. And you saw what happened and how the people treated him. However, when the Prophet ﷺ came for the Mi'raj and he led that Salah, it wasn't just a Salah. The ulama mentioned, many ulama mentioned this, Ibn Taymiyyah rahimahullah, Ibn Kathir rahimahullah, Imam Al-Suyuti rahimahullah, and in nowadays times we find also Shaykh Yusuf Al-Qardawi and others have also mentioned this, that the idea of the Prophet ﷺ leading all of the previous Prophets in Salah in Masjid Al-Aqsa wasn't just a spiritual religious uh, gathering this was also a great political gathering as well why politically now every prophet has now this is a flagship ceremony they're handing over the standard and the flag of leadership of the ummah to the prophet where is it being handed not in makkah not in Madinah. it was handed over here this is they're, they're all, all of the previous prophets are saying by 
ensured that by placing him as the Imam sallallahu alaihi wasallam, that from now onwards, all of us, including Isa and Musa and all of the prophets, saying we're handing it over to you. Everything is yours now. Now you will lead the the ummah and humanity. You are the leader of mankind. Where does this happen? So up until now. And then when the Prophet returns from this journey of Al-Isra'i wal-Mi'raj, what happens? Very soon after this is the Hijrah. And when the Hijrah happens, what happens now? Now he has his own masjid. Before they were even allowed to pray in the Kaaba. If they did, they were persecuted. And there were idols around the Kaaba. And then Makkah got taken from them. Now everything's changed. He has returned now. He is, he is now a, a, a leader of the community. He is not just an imam, he is also the, 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 the command of the military as well. He has his own military, they're going for Badr. He has his own army now. He has his own masjid now. They have their base, they've established a state. Okay? And there are so many things that have happened. So life before Mi'raj, life after Mi'raj is very different. And we find this that anybody that goes there, travels there, their life before and after, you find a significant difference if, of course, time spent properly and taken from the barakat that are there. And it has this unique barakah in that particular land. This is why there is so much struggle for it. And anybody, any regime, any government, whoever has ruled there, they have managed to rule the rest of the world. Whoever has that area, that land, this is why the loss of Baytul Maqdis for Islam is too great. It's the loss of Muslims. If you lose Masjid al-Aqsa, you've lost a lot. If you have Masjid al-Aqsa, you have gained. If you've lost it, you're losing a lot. And that's what we can see today. So this is the emphasis. And the interesting thing here is, if somebody doesn't go or doesn't want to go in this life, you have to go anyway on the Day of Judgment. Whether you like it or not, Allah is going to make you go. Because that is going to be the land of resurrection. So you, you, you hesitate today from going, Allah will bring you there anyway, regardless whether you like it or not. Uh, Imam Al-Qurtubi says, this is referring to Israfil who's holding the horn, uh, standing on the Sakhratu Baytul Maqdis, on the rock of Baytul Maqdis, underneath the dome of the rock, waiting to blow that horn. When he blows the horn, what will happen? Everybody will gather. Where they will gather, when, when someone announces, announce what happens. When the Mu'addin calls the Adhan from the Masjid, we don't go to the bullring, do we? Okay, you go to where the announcer is. So the announcer is going to be in Baytul Maqdis. So this is where everybody will arrive. And the first to arrive, Al-Hashir, will be Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So, question 11, where is Al-Aqsa mentioned or referred to in the Quran? Too many places. Time doesn't allow us to go into the details. Uh, one of the Juma talks we did some weeks ago, we spoke about all the references to Baytul Maqdis in the Quran. Well, not all of them, some of them we listed. Uh, and there are many. So, of course, we've got the, the ayah which we always speak about. Subhanalladhi asra bi abdihi laylan min al masjid al haram ila al masjid al aqsa. That is one of many, many ayat which speak about Masjid al Aqsa, Baytul Maqdis, or that particular land. Ibn al-Murajjah has mentioned that it is the most discussed land in the Quran. Because if you think about it, Sahaba radiallahu anhum in Makkatul Mukarramah, the Quran that was being revealed was all the um, ayat Makkiyah. And in the Makki surahs, most of them talk about the stories of the previous prophets. 
And most of those profits uh, came to those lungs. So the discussion and the stories are, most of them are all regarding those particular areas. So you've got direct men mention there and you've got other mention as well of so many ayat. Uh, we, we, you know, if one day inshallah maybe we can try and go through the ayat once again or if somebody could collect these ayat in one place that would be very interesting as a read as well. To see all of the ayat in the Quran in which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala makes mention of Baytul Maqdis Masjid Al-Aqsa. If you open the Quran, start from Surah Al-Baqarah, uh, there will be so many ayat there. Just look at Surah Ali Imran, for example. Ali Imran is regarding Masjid Al-Aqsa. Uh, the mother of uh, Maryam, uh, she's making a vow. Uh, that vow was dedicating her child to Masjid Al-Aqsa, which was Maryam. And then everything that happens after that. Zakariya alayhi salam, hunalika da'a Zakariya rabba, kullama dakhala alayha Zakariya al-mihrab. Where was this mihrab? In Masjid al-Aqsa. We can carry on going. And all of these ayat are in reference to Masjid al-Aqsa. Wattini was zaytun, for example, is talking about Masjid al-Aqsa. There are so many ayat in the Quran like this. Um, what did Al-Aqsa look like when Suleiman built it with the jinns? Was it one building or many buildings? I don't know, I wasn't there at the time. We don't know. It's very difficult to try and know certain things of the past, um, especially in regards to Suleiman Now this is an interesting point. You will find in the world uh, that discoveries have been made of periods uh, prior to Suleiman where they found X, Y, and Z, discoveries have been made, and you have some of these uh, antiques in, in, in artifacts in museums, etc. And of course, you'll find a lot of things after the time of Suleiman, but when you travel to Palestine and you go, and in those areas where Suleiman, of course, he lived in Masjid al Aqsa, he lived in that area, his whole life was there. So, he, and, and it wasn't, Suleiman was a prophet that did a lot of construction. Quran speaks about them as well. What's the ayat? All of these things were structures, buildings. And uh, things that Suleiman was getting built by the jinn. And Quran speaks about these things. And huge, huge cooking pots as well. And many arches and maharib and, uh, and, 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 and all of these structures and monuments that were being built. When you go there, you do find things and areas. You might be told that this is from so-and-so age and this is from so-and-so age. But there is nothing which is shown to be with evidence i'm not just talking about some any random tour guide that takes you and tells you this is a pillar from the time of Suleiman a lot of people do this and it's sad because a lot of people go here even learned people go from here and i, I don't know maybe it's the love of the place and the respect you have of these individuals or maybe not knowing yourself so then people just tend to believe whatever they're told and they're told that look this is you know, the jinns are the ones who built it. Look how big it is. And you think, oh, yeah, yeah. And we like stories like that, to be honest. If somebody tells you the truth, you get a bit disappointed. No, that, that was a nice story that was. But, I mean, it's important to be authentic. That's not going to... Being authentic, it's not going to take away the honor 
and the sanctity and the dignity of Masjidul Aqsa. Our job isn't to dignify Masjidul Aqsa any more than it is. Allah's already done it. I don't need to sit here and try and uh, give Masjidul Aqsa a special status. That's already been done by Allah and His Rasul Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. I can't do it anymore and I can't do it any less. It's already got its status. But we can't attach extra things from ourselves that it doesn't have. So, for example, when we go to Masjid Al-Aqsa, many people, when you go, uh, there's an area you go downstairs uh, underneath the Al-Jami Al-Qibli, which is called the Al-Aqsa Qadim, and you go further on right towards the Qibla wall. And there are some certain pillars. And everybody tells you this, that this is, these are the pillars from the time of Sulaiman alayhi salam, and these are jinns built here. And as soon as somebody tells you, you think, yeah, look how big it is. And, and that could be possible, but you can't say things like this without evidence. You can't, you can't just say it. Just because it sounds good, or somebody said it to you, or your mind tells you, that's not how our religion works. That's not how tarikh works. That's not how, you know, that's, then somebody else could say something else. That, that is not how our religion works. So we have a thorough process, and it's very difficult. With a hadith, it's possible because Obviously, we've got 1400 years. It's not that long of a time. With historic narrations or architecture, for example, which you might not really have anything authentic, it's very difficult. Same goes for all of the prophetic artifacts. Like, how can you prove if somebody tells you that this is the hair of the Prophet ﷺ? As much as you want to believe it, how can you prove it? How, how, how can you prove it? What, what, how can you, you need to, you need to authenticate it. If I tell you that I, in, in here I've, I've got a hair, and this is one of the hair of the Prophet ﷺ, as much as you love the Prophet ﷺ, and you might trust me, but you can't just believe me. That's not how it works. Have you got a sanad? Have you got a chain? How are you saying this? How are you claiming this? So most of the artifacts of the Prophet ﷺ, or nearly all of them that we have, it, it, it would be very difficult to, you know, as much as we'd love to, and it's highly possible that they are related to the Prophet ﷺ, but can you say 100% regarding any of them? You need a chain. You need to prove it. Otherwise, anybody can come up with anything. So it doesn't work like that, where you just feel that you want to attach this to Sulaiman because it looks huge. Who said, who said this? Was it a historian who said this? If he said it, what, what did he base it on? Many ulama said this. And again, it's not just to do with, uh, it's, it's not just a historical fact. Um, we have to do archaeological findings and tests on the rocks to see which date they are from. I mean, there's all this kind of technology now present. And it's all possible. And we should be thorough. Muslims should be thorough in what we do. It shouldn't just be that we just buy anything, take it off the shelf because somebody said it and we go along. And unfortunately, that's what's happening with a lot of things. We just hear what we say. Here, we just take what we hear and we start passing it on. So regarding Suleiman alayhi salam, I'm not aware of any, anything that has been proven authentically to be from the period of Suleiman alayhi salam including those pillars that you see uh, in Al-Aqsa Qadim when you go down. Um, they go back to the Roman period. 
and they are highly possible and, and the archaeologists who have done their research in that particular area underground they have shown certain proofs to show that they are from the Roman period uh, because of some of the crowns some of the designs uh, and then some of the rest of the thing is from the Umayyad period anyway time doesn't allow me to go into those details it's difficult to actually talk about it without physically seeing it but um, one possibility again I say it's a possibility I'm not saying this is it Suleiman alayhi salam when he built Baytul Maqdis uh, the reconstruction of Masjid al-Aqsa he made three du'as one of them was uh, oh Allah grant me judgment that coincides with your judgment Allah granted it to him the second du'a was this Rabbi, Rabbi habli mulkan la yambaghili ahadim min ba'di oh Allah grant me such a kingdom that will not be suitable for anyone after me Allahu alam Allah knows best this is just a theory that Suleiman is saying, oh Allah, grant me a kingdom that will not be suitable for anyone after me. Suitable to own, suitable to possess, suitable to even see and witness. Thus, despite Suleiman living there all his life, doing so much construction, archaeologically, nothing has been proven uh, to be from his time. From any of the rocks and stones and any of the things that you find there today. It's just not there. It probably was at one time. We don't deny that. Of course it was. Because the hadith tell us. But currently we don't find anything from that period. Uh, so we don't know exactly how Masjid al-Aqsa looked at the time of Suleiman alayhi salam. There are certain historic narrations which are extremely weak. I would even say maybe even fabricated. And we don't rely upon them. Okay, we have to make sure that we utilize a hadith that are uh, accurate. What we can say is... Our connection to Masjid al-Aqsa is way older and predates Suleiman alayhi salam. Where does it go back to? All the way to Prophet Adam alayhi salam. Hadith of Abu Dharr radiallahu ta'ala who is very important here. Abu Dharr radiallahu ta'ala who asked the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam which was the first masjid to be built on earth. He said Masjid al-Haram, the Kaaba in Makkah. Then which was next? He said the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam said Masjid al-Aqsa. It was Masjid al-Aqsa. How many years in between? said 40 years. Now, who built the first masjid? This is the important question. From the Quran, we learn that Ibrahim didn't build, he wasn't the first to build the Kaaba. We learn this from the Quran. How do we learn this from the Quran? You might be telling me, Quran tells us Ibrahim is the one who built the Kaaba with his son Ismail Well, if we read the Quran, before Ismail salam and Ibrahim salam built the Kaaba, they were the ones who did build the Kaaba. But were they the first to build the Kaaba? Well, we know that Ismail salam also built the Kaaba with his father Ibrahim salam. Could he have done it when he was a baby? Of course not. He was much older. When he was still a baby, we know the famous story when Ibrahim salam came from, Palace, from, uh, from Palestine, he comes and he brings his wife Hajar over here when they came from Egypt and he brings her to Makkah al-Mukarramah and he leaves and he's walking off and he's going. We all know this story. We are approaching the days of Hajj and you'll be hearing this story again and again. Quran tells us, you know the story, Hajar says, where are you going? He doesn't reply. Did Allah tell you? He goes, yes. He goes, okay, Allah will look after us and he will not uh, put us to waste. So, when he goes out of sight, he makes a dua and the Quran mentions this dua. 
ربي إني أسكنت من ذريتي بواد غير ذي زرع عند بيتك المحرم. Quran says, Oh Allah, I have left my children. Was there anything in Makkah at that time? No, it was barren, empty. Oh Allah, I have left my wife, my child, my dhurriya, biwad in ghairi di zar'in, in a barren land, inda baytikal muharram, by your sacred house. Who's saying this? The Quran is telling us, by your sacred house. Quran saying, Ismail is still a baby. We know Ismail salam, when he got older, that's when they built the Kaaba. So how is he saying by your in the Baytikal Muharram, by your sacred house? What does that tell you? That tells you that the Kaaba was there before Ibrahim salam's time. Maybe it wasn't physically there anymore. It wasn't physically there because when the flood came for the time of Nuh salam, it was either lifted up to the heavens. So it wasn't physically, but the area was there. The place was there. And in the hadith where uh, we find Hajar speaking about the water of Zamzam, uh, we find the hadith mentioning that the Makan that was the, by the, the area, by the water of Zamzam, there was a high place which have been the Makan al-Bayt Kanat Murtafi'ah. It was slightly raised. So it wasn't may maybe not a hill as such, but it was slightly raised where the Kaaba would have been originally. Now fast forward when Ismail has now grown up, and Ibrahim returns, okay, and we look at the ayat of the Quran. This is what Quran says. When Ibrahim and Ismail, the foundations were already there. Quran doesn't say when they built the Kaaba, it says when they raised the foundations, meaning they were already there. They raised them. وَإِذْ يَرْفَعُ إِبْرَاهِيمُ الْقَوَاعِدَ مِنَ الْبَيْتِ وَإِسْمَاعِيلُ رَبَّنَا تَقَبَّلْ مِنَّا إِنَّكَ أَنْتَ السَّمِيعُ الْعَلِيمُ So from this we learn that the first will now Hafidh ibn Hajar al-Asqalani rahmatullah alayhi who is the greatest authority when it comes to commenting on Sahih al-Bukhari. He has the Fath al-Bari. He is of the opinion that the first to build the Kaaba was Prophet Adam alayhi salam. And then he was the first same after 40 years, he is the one who built the, uh, the Masjid Al-Aqsa as well. Now, you might be thinking, what's the connection with Sulaiman salam's time? So we're getting there. So when Adam salam built Masjid Al-Aqsa at that time, again, it was through divine revelation, Wahi. It didn't necessarily have to be a structure like we see it today. It could have just been an outside wall to say, this is the, this is the masjid. It doesn't, a masjid doesn't have to have a roof. It doesn't need a dome, it doesn't need a minaret. And this is why most of Masjid Al-Aqsa today is not covered, it's open, it's in open area. And many people, they still get confused because, they, we, because we're so used to a masjid being a building, people find it difficult to understand. So at the time of Adam alayhi salam, again, we don't know. Nobody can say it was like this because we don't know. It could have possibly been maybe a stone put in four corners this is the masjid everything inside this or it could have been a wall built okay like the kaaba the kaaba didn't have a roof uh, before it was just you know it didn't have a roof in, in the early days so and it wasn't as high as it is now 
So the, that has had changes as well. The shape of it was different as well. So it could have just been outer walls. Um, again, Suleiman alayhi salam, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala granted him kingdom. He had the jinn who were working for him. He had people working for him as well. So it could possibly have been much more elegant, much more sophisticated. There could have been much more built there as such. But what, what we need to understand is regardless of how many buildings were on there or weren't on there, the land of Masjid al-Aqsa remains the same. That's the main thing. Like today there's buildings, right? Tomorrow those buildings might not be there. Yesterday, like the okay, let's talk about the Prophet Wasallam's time. Or before that. So you've got Adam salam. Then we have uh, Ibrahim salam is also mentioned in some of the narrations. Ibrahim salam with his son. So with his son Ismail salam, he built the Kaaba. With his son Ishaq salam, he also rebuilt Masjid al-Aqsa. These narrations. Okay, it might, might not be as strongly proven, but there's there. And then later on, we find mention that Dawud also did a reconstruction of Masjid al-Aqsa, which was then completed by Suleiman uh, And that's in the hadith, or very clearly in the hadith. Uh, last week, uh, I had a very interesting encounter. Uh, Haji Sab asked me uh, as I was leaving that, uh, you know, we always hear about Suleiman in building of a, 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 a you know whether it be a temple or a masjid or a worship area where is that okay we always hear about it so this is that is masjid al-aqsa masjid al-aqsa predates Suleiman alayhi salam there is no such thing as solomon's temple what Suleiman alayhi salam built was masjid al-aqsa he did a reconstruction and it was there way before his time so Adam Islam builds it first, and then Ibrahim Islam did a reconstruction. Uh, Dawud Islam does a reconstruction. Suleiman Islam is a big reconstruction. Okay, maybe he extended it also. Maybe he added much more things to it also. Allah knows best. We don't have any remains of that, but the land is still there. The land is still there. What he built on there, we don't know. But remember, the masjid is the land. Okay, and the boundary of it. The buildings that were built on it and were there, some are there, some are not. It doesn't really matter. They come and go. But the masjid is the actual land. In this, this is our masjid, for example. Now you could build, for example, a few things here and there. That doesn't really matter. Those buildings are there today. Tomorrow somebody could decide, no, it doesn't look very nice. Let's take it away. Okay. These pillars that are there, for example, I know it's holding the place up. But, you know, somebody might invent some kind of technology where you don't need those pillars. You remove them. That, that, that's, that doesn't matter. It's the masjid. So it's that land, 144,000 square meters of land. It's still there. And so we have the time of Suleiman alayhi salam. And then after that, of course, there may, must have been other, others who came and did other work as well. Allah knows best. But then going later on, we find when Sayyidina Umar radiallahu ta'ala who comes. So now, then a period comes after Isa alayhi salam, a period comes when the Romans, the Byzantine Empire, are the ones who are ruling those lands. And they used the area and the land of Masjid al-Aqsa as a garbage dump, a rubbish tip. So they didn't build anything on it, nothing at all. And this is why during the time of the Prophet wasallam, there was nothing on that land, nothing. It was empty, nothing on there at all. And and the, the, the rock is a, it's a, it's a natural rock in the middle. 
it's a mount actually the land is not all straight it's some of it straight and some of it's mountainous half half and there's a mountain in, in mount in the middle that's where that's the highest point of that particular land towards the qibla side where you see the green domed uh, musalla which people mistakenly refer to masjid al-aqsa in reality that is the lowest part of the mountain uh, you're seeing it very high because the Umayyads built a whole floor underneath and then on top of that built that building that you see with the green dome Otherwise originally imagine where the dome of the rock is So that's a peak of the mountain and then it goes down Like and it goes quite far down. So where you see that particular green domed musalla Remember Umar when he came that floor wasn't even there. It would have been down here because the Umayyads who came after the Khulafa al-Arba, they are the ones who built and made it level. And then they built on top of that. So at the time of the Prophet there was nothing there. Uh, when he came from Mi'raj, there was no like individual buildings. Sayyidina Umar when he came, it was full of garbage. So this is why when he came, he made an effort of cleaning. All the Sahaba started to clean. They were crying, saying, such a blessed place where Al-Isra Al-Miraj happened and it's all full of dirt. So they're cleaning. So they clean the place. And then he decided to make a musalla, not masjid. Remember, you can't have a masjid inside a masjid. All the people call it masjid. Okay, they might call it Al-Masjid Al-Qibli. Masjid Qubbatu Sakhra. Qubbatu Sakhra is not a masjid. Okay, the masjid is Masjid Al-Aqsa. Masjid Al-Aqsa is the masjid. You can't have a masjid inside a masjid. Why would you need a masjid inside a masjid? Yeah, we can call it a musalla because Masjid Al-Aqsa is so big, it's open. So you can have some areas which you have the roof. So if it's hot, it will protect you. If it rains, it protects you. From the wind, it protects you. So you have a musalla maybe. Okay, so we have a musalla. So Umar ibn Khattab anhu decided inside Masjid Al-Aqsa to make a musalla. So he made it out towards the Qibla wall. That building which he made today is not present after him Muawiyah came he made an even bigger one that building today is not present does that mean that Masjid al-Aqsa is no longer there no that wasn't Masjid al-Aqsa Masjid al-Aqsa is the land buildings come and go Abdul Malik ibn Marwan commissioned for the building of the Dome of the Rock I mean before the Dome of the Rock never used to be there but that doesn't really matter it doesn't make a difference whether you have that building or you don't so the buildings that are there they came and they went but the land has always been the same. It's the same land. From the time of Adam salam up until now, and from now until Qiyamah, it will remain the same land. I would like to ask about how, how long do we have left? Okay. Got quite a few questions. I'm thinking which one to. Okay, let, let's take this one. This is from last week. I would like to ask about the fact that the prophecies are already revealed about Masjid al Aqsa. Therefore, why should we take action to defend Masjid al Aqsa? Do we get the question? There's already prophecies given about Masjid al Aqsa, whether it's going to be liberated, it's going to be conquered, things will change for the better. Why should we defend it then? It's going to happen. Why should we defend it? Good question. Do we ever think of this? 
Maybe not about Masjid Al-Aqsa, but any, any other things as well. Sometimes this question comes to people's minds nowadays. We hear this. Um, so let's try and understand this question. Okay. Um, let, let, let's try and understand it in a different way. Allah has promised you your rizq. Hasn't he? Yeah? He's promised you that you will not die until you have your rizq. So why do you go to work? Why do you work? You be Allah's promise, He's going to. Everything Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, He has taken care of your risk. And your risk will come to you, it will search for you, just like, you know, you, will, you won't leave the world until you have all of your risk. Does that mean we should sit at home and not work? No. So that's just one way of understanding this. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Inna nahnu nazzalna dhikra wa inna lahu lahafidun. We have revealed the Quran, we are going to protect it. So we close all the madrasas down, no hips class anymore. No one should learn the Quran. There should be no Quran class. Because Allah Allah's promised He's going to protect the Quran. So should we not have any more? Are we, are we understanding the theme? Okay. So it, it's a good question, but then we need to look at it and understand it because a lot of people ask this question, maybe not regarding Palestine, but they might ask it about other things. When it's already going to happen, why should we have to make the effort for it? The conquest of Makkah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed in Hudaybiyyah, inna fatahna laka fatham mubina. Why did the Prophet وسلم, feel the need to march towards Makkah al-Mukarramah with thousands of Sahaba radiallahu ta'ala anhum? The Prophet وسلم, was told regarding some of the people of Quraysh that they will not accept Iman. They're not going to believe. But despite that, the Prophet وسلم, still went to them, still warned them. And very interesting, the Quran says, The Quran says, For them, it's the same. You warn them. Or you don't mourn them, they're not going to believe. He didn't say, Wasawa'un alayka. Oh, Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, it's the same for you. No, you will get the reward. You carry on warning them, you will get the reward. But for them, it's the same. But that did not stop him from carrying out his uh, duties. The Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam prophesied in his time the liberation of Baytul Maqdis. We just spoke about three ahadith. Awf ibn Malik al Ashja'i, U'dud sittan bayna yaday sa'a. We discussed this just now. Did that stop the Prophet ﷺ working towards his liberation? No. He knew it was going to happen, but constantly he was working. On his deathbed, the Prophet ﷺ, while he was leaving the world, there's three things we find he said. There's other things also, but three main things. Look after your women. Okay, this is one thing he said. Oh, while he's leaving the world, imagine the most beloved person to us, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, while he was leaving the world, three things he advised us. Okay, as a parting advice, istawsu bin nisa'i khaira, number one. Be very, very good and kind to your women, number one. Number two, and then Islam say, people say that Islam, uh, you know, it's, it, it's uh, backwards when it comes to dealing with women. Islam gave the rights to women. Istawsu bin nisa'i khaira. And then he said, under any circumstances, you must dispatch the army of Osama ibn Zayd 
no matter what happens. This is he's on his last moments. Whatever happens, that army must go. There were some Sahaba who were hesitant. Why? Usama ibn Zayd is only 20 years old. There are great Sahaba, Abu Bakr, Umar, and, and the others, who are much senior. And the Prophet has made him the leader of this army. And they're about to leave. And the Prophet is in his final moments. And he stressed that no matter what happens, send that army. Why? Where was it going? That is the army that was going towards Baytul Maqdis. Because prior to this, the Prophet had sent an army to the place where we call Muta, the Ghazwa of Muta. For the first time, he actually named and numbered who's going to be the leader and what's going to happen. What did he say? He says, Zayd ibn Haritha will take the flag of Islam. He will be martyred. And then Abdullah ibn Jafar will take the flag and he will be martyred. And then Abdullah bin Rawaha will take the flag. And exactly like this, where did these Sahaba go? They went towards Baytul Maqdis, very close by uh, a place we call Karak in Jordan nowadays, very close to that area, Muta. And they said, why were they going there? This was the Prophet planning his strategy towards the liberation of Baytul Maqdis. He knew it was going to happen. Did he just sit there? No. 3,000 Sahaba. And the enemy was 100,000 and then they sent another 100,000, 200,000 Sahaba, 3,000 on this end, 200, sorry, 200,000 of the opponents. Okay, and these are Romans, Romans. The Prophet ﷺ sent one of his messengers to invite the Ghassanid ruler to Islam and they killed him. So the Prophet ﷺ said, you know, we must do something. So he sent these, these Sahaba, three Sahaba and exactly He's in Medina, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, and he's re receiving wahi. He's telling the Sahaba that Zayd ibn Haritha has become shaheed and Abdullah ibn Jafar has taken the flag in his hand. They cut his hand off, he took it in the left hand. They cut this hand off, he took it like this. And then when he was also martyred as well, then Abdullah ibn Rawaha radiallahu ta'ala took the flag. And he is in, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam is in Medina and he's telling the Sahaba that Abdullah bin Rawaha has also been killed. Then he said, a sword from the swords of Allah has taken the flag and Allah has granted victory. Khalid ibn Walid was given the title Saifun min Suyufillah in Baytul Maqdis. Jafar radiallahu ta'ala was given the title At-Tayyar, the Jafar with the wings because of dying in Baytul Maqdis. Abu Bakr was given the title As-Siddiq why? Because of the testimony of the story of Baytul Maqdis. So we can continue. He sallallahu alayhi wa sallam continued, you know, working towards this world is Darul Asbab. We have cause and effect. So we have to continue working. We're responsible for our actions. We continue working for the good and we will be rewarded. So we can't say it's already prophesized. Why should we work towards it? Well, don't you want the reward? If we work towards it, it might not happen in our time. Nuruddin Zinki Rahmatullah Alayhi, 20 years before the liberation of Baytul Maqdis, in Aleppo, he built a mimbar. And he said, this is mimbar al-tahrir. When the Masjid al-Aqsa becomes liberated, I want this mimbar to be placed there. Did he know it's going to happen? No, he didn't know. It took 20 years, he died. And Allah accepted the sincerity and the intention. And when Salahuddin Ayyubi Rahmatullah Alayhi, in 1187, when Masjid Al-Aqsa was liberated, they reminded him there's a member made by Nuruddin. And it came there and it remained there for 800 years. This is the Ikhlas. There was a woman at that time, she was mixing something. Somebody says, what are you doing? 
She says, this is rose water. Ma'ul wart, rose water. Why have you got rose water? Because when Masjid Al-Aqsa will be liberated, I'm going to take this rose water and I'm going to sprinkle it on the Sakhra to Baytul Maqdis to give it some perfume and cleanse it. It's the intention at the end of the, whatever you can do, whatever within your means. This old lady, even she is making preparations and getting ready for the day. I end with one hadith of the Prophet ﷺ. The Prophet ﷺ tells us in a hadith, if the final hour comes, if the final hour meaning Qiyamah comes, you know, we're not talking about a sign of the day of judgment. If you know, somebody tells you that the final hour is about to happen. You see, Israfil is holding the horn in his hand, he's about to blow in it. The final hour is about to happen. And the hadith says, if you have a plant in your hand, if you have a plant in your hand, a tree in your hand, a shrub in your hand, a shoot of a plant in your hand, even if it's going to be Qiyamah, you can see, not reading in the books, you can see it's going to be Qiyamah any minute now. The Prophet said, if you have a chance to plant that seed, to plant that tree, do it. Do it. Even if you know Qiyamah is going to happen. And there's so many lessons we can take from just this one hadith. So many lessons. And the main thing is nowadays, everybody's excited about these end of time events. Everybody's listening to, you know, whether it's uh, Imran Hussein, I wouldn't advise you to listen to him anyway. He's very corrupt in his beliefs and what he says. He speaks against the hadith of the Prophet Sallallahu Whether you're listening to people like Dr. Isar Ahmad or even Maulana Sajjad Nomani or people like this who are speaking about the end of times, everyone's really excited. But generally these talks don't really gear you to do anything. A lot of times it makes you a bit depressed thinking, what can I do now? Oh no, things are getting really bad. Whereas the Prophet was telling us the total opposite. Forget the signs of the hour. He's not talking about any signs. He's saying, if you can see the horn is about to be blown and Qiyamah is happening now and you've got a plant in your hand, go and plant it. Do it. Don't wait. Don't get depressed. Don't think about it. Go and do it. Action, action, action. Do whatever you can quickly, 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 as much as you can, because this is what will count. And there are so many lessons we can learn. One is number one, contribute. If there's any cause, do whatever you can within your means. You don't have to do what the next man's doing, but do what you can. Contribute whatever you can with your words, with your action, with your dua, with your niyyah. With your thoughts, do something. Don't just sit back and listen to these talks and think, oh, what's going to happen now? Mahdi is coming, Yajud Maju is coming, Dajjal is going to come. Is it? That's not going to do anything. He said, that final hour is about to come. You know it's about to come. You've got to plant, plant it. Maybe that will benefit somebody. Some, and remember, another thing you learn from there is you're not responsible for the outcome. Why did he say plant? Because you know when you plant a seed, you don't know if it's going to grow or not. And it's not a quick process. Does it, does it grow straight away? You plant it, you water it, and straight away, the sun comes out the next morning, it's going to become a tree. No, it's a, it takes a long time. So the Prophet Wasallam is teaching us, you are not responsible for the outcome. Don't be so focused on the results. Enjoy the journey. Enjoy the journey. Enjoy what you're doing. Don't be obsessed with the results. That's not your responsibility. Be positive. Light candles. Don't curse the darkness. Light candles, don't curse the darkness. 
when it comes to the issue of Palestine and Masjid Al-Aqsa, it's the same thing. Do whatever you can within your means. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala accept us and reward us. Wa akhiru da'wana. And alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen.